a few weeks since we've been in a series. I'm going to try moving around here because sometimes that helps with this. It's time to replace this mic. Um, been, a, been a number of weeks since we've been in a series. Brian shared with us about four weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I did a message on philosophy of ministry and it was Palm Sunday and Easter and four weeks. And I had all this time to, you know, get a sense of where God was directing and leading and where I should start a series. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking this, I, I, help. Tuesday night, I was meeting with uh, our guys in our men's group and somebody said to me, where are you going on Sunday? I said, I don't know. I need you to pray for me. And uh, Wednesday morning, I, I woke up and I just felt like the Lord uh, just spoke so clearly to me that two years ago, we were in 2 Corinthians and that, and that now was the season for 1 Corinthians, kind of backwards. And, uh, and so been digging into that and just encouraged and excited to start this series through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says this. I'm going to just look at the first three verses this morning. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul planted this church in Corinth to whom he writes this letter. He planted this church while he was on his second missionary journey. And so prior to coming um, to the city of Corinth, he was in a community, a city that we know that still exists today, Athens, about 70 kilometers away from uh, the city of Corinth. And the account of Paul's time in Athens is told in Acts chapter 17. There's, there's actually discussion amongst Bible scholars, preachers, theologians as to uh, whether you would deem Paul's ministry in Athens a success or a bit more of a failure, whatever the case, um, as Paul left Athens and he came to the city of Corinth, he made this declaration really clear and you see it in the book of Acts and you also see it here and it's going to be one of the, th the major theme. It's really the theme of 1 Corinthians. That Paul made a determination in his heart and in his life and in his ministry that he would preach Christ and Christ crucified. That that would be his message. And he came to Corinth with this, this fresh uh, commitment to do so. And so when he got to Corinth, Acts chapter 18 tells us, I would encourage you to go home and, and maybe read it today or this week, that when he got there, he met a Jewish couple. Their name was Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. Uh, they were tent makers. Uh, they were believers who had been driven out of, they, they were Jewish but they were messianic in that they believed that Jesus Christ, Jesus was the Christ. And they had lived in the city of Rome. And at that time, Claudius had, the emperor Claudius had made a decree in Rome to drive out all the Jews. Um, because Christianity was advancing and there, there, there was turmoil. And so the solution was get the Jews out of the city of Rome. And so they were driven out. They left Rome and they, they came here to Corinth Paul meets with them and 
Paul was by trade what? A tent maker. That's where we get that term, tent maker. He's a missionary. He had a, he had a secular occupation while he did the work of the, the ministry. And so Paul joined ranks with them. And Acts chapter 18 tells us that he began to go to the synagogue there in Corinth. And he would uh, discuss and, and argue and debate with Jews and Greeks there that Jesus was the Christ. Eventually, Timothy and Silas come and they join him. And then Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul devoted all of his time to the ministry of the word, to proclaiming uh, Christ. And while he was ministering in the synagogue, uh, what began to happen is, as he preached the gospel, that there began to be increasingly a resistance from the Jews and a reviling of the message that he was proclaiming. And so Paul finally one day went outside the synagogue. He said, shake off my garments. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles to preach the message of Christ. And Axis, he did this. He went right next door to the house of a, a Gentile believer by the name of Tedious Justice and continued on uh, the ministry of the word. In time, though, the synagogue ruler, a man by the name of Crispus, came to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul. And Crispus and his whole family got saved and they were baptized. And Paul continued on doing the work of the ministry for about another six months. And after that uh, time, at that time, the Jews made a united attack against Paul. They, they got together. They got the new ruler of the synagogue because Crispus had been thrown out because he had become a follower of Christ Jesus. And Paul was brought, as it is told in Acts chapter 18, before the local pro-council, um, the, the local ruler for a tribunal, a trial. And these charges were brought against him uh, by the Jews that he was you know, divisive and he was preaching this stuff and all these things. And so the pro-council said this. He said, I, I'm throwing this out. I don't want anything to do with this. This is about you. This is about your religion. This is about your, your law, about your words. And I don't know anything about this. And I don't want anything to do with it. So I'm tossing it out. You deal with it yourselves. Uh, the, the Jews were really, uh, they were mad. They, they actually got mad at at the ruler of their synagogue, this new man who was in place by the name of Sothenes. And they took him, it says, and they beat him. They gave him a whooping outside, outside the area where this tribunal had happened. Now, I don't know what happened to Sothenes, but he became a believer and he is listed in verse one. Check it out again. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes. First time we see Sothenes in the scripture after Acts chapter 18. And, you know, I just wonder how this guy came to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I wonder that if maybe while he was slain, bloodied and beaten in the gutter in Corinth after his own people had laid hands on him, if Paul and the Christians came like the Samaritan on the road to Jericho and washed his wounds and, and it cared for him and cleaned him up and, and dressed him and nursed him to, to health. 
And, you know, even though he had brought Paul to court, some act of love and commitment to Christ Jesus from the church in Corinth affected this man. So he gave his life to Jesus. It made me think of Paul who, you know, one time took off his robe and stood in approval of the murder that happened of Stephen as he was beaten. Paul stood there in approval because at that time he was opposed to the message of Christ Jesus. But then he met Jesus. And now here again, I mean, imagine in your mind's eye, he stood and he watched another beating. And this time it was one who had opposed him for preaching Christ Jesus. And what did he do? I, I, I just imagine that he, he went and he, he cared for that man. And he loved that man. And he showed the gospel of Christ Jesus to that man. And met him in his place of need. And the man was affected and Sothenes surrendered his heart to Christ Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And the next time we see Sothenes in the scriptures right here, he is now a co-laborer with Paul. He is laboring for the purposes of the gospel of Christ Jesus alongside Paul. And you know, it's so awesome to consider how the Lord works by his spirit in people's lives. Through us at times. You know, often, that didn't work. I tried moving and I hear static. Often one of, um, you know, often the ones who are most violently opposed to the gospel that our lives proclaim are often those who are most convicted by the spirit of God in regards to the message of the cross. And for Sothenes, we might ask, what did it take for this man to come to faith? Well, it took a, a few more hits, a few more blows uh, from his friends in the world before he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And the same is true often for those who oppose us, who oppose the message of the gospel in our lives, who we tell about Jesus and they resist us the hardest. Sometimes what they need is a few more blows from the world before they recognize their need for Jesus Christ. And it's at that time that we need to come around and love them and continue to share Christ. And so, you know, I would encourage you um, for those that oppose you and those who are opposed to the message of the gospel in your life, keep loving them. Keep sharing Christ with them. Maybe a few more hits from the world and they'll come around. Verse one again says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Those words in verse one, to be, called to be an apostle, are actually added by the translators. They're added to try and help bring some clarity to the sentence, but it actually clouds what the spirit of God was saying. In the original, it says this, the original language, Paul called by the will of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was not trying to attain something. Paul was not trying to rise to some office in the church. What he was, he was by the will of God. What he was, he was by the calling of God. And it was not man's will or not um, man's calling. But God had designated Paul a sent one. A special ambassador of The gospel, Jesus Christ intercepted Paul while he rode on a horse to Damascus to go and 
persecute followers of Jesus Christ. The Lord intercepted him and stood in opposition to him and revealed himself to him. And Paul surrendered his life to Jesus and a prophetic word was spoken over him by Ananias and said, you are an apostle to the Gentiles. God has sent you. And so Paul was not trying to attain something. He was something. God had designated him as something. And that's an important theme that we're going to see in this letter. Now, uh, Paul actually spent 18 months in Corinth. From there, he went on to Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. There were problems in Corinth. We're going to see that. And so he says this in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth, in those, it's a city that doesn't exist today. Corinth in those days, and in Paul's time, was a city of around 400,000. It had uh, uh, three ports of trade. Two of them were extremely, extremely significant, and they made the city uh, very wealthy. Actually, Corinth was like Seashelt. It was built on a land bridge, right? Seashelt, the land between, between two waters, an isthmus. That's what Corinth was. It was this land bridge between the mainland of Greece and the peninsula of Acacia. And it was this land bridge four miles wide. And the ships could come from either side and and could trade their goods. And it could be moved uh, through the city. And so at this time, uh, Corinth was an extremely prosperous, wealthy, economically powerful city within uh, the Roman Empire. It was also being a Greek city, really into philosophy, really into the thoughts of the days. It was, it was a favorite of philosophers of that generation, one of the spots that they liked to hang out. And so the people were into uh, the intellectual arguments of the day and the new discussions that were happening. And so by day, intellectual, educated philosophical, wealthy, powerful, influential. That was Corinth by day. By night, Corinth was a morally bankrupt city. So much so that in the Roman Empire, to call someone a Corinthian was to refer to the fact that they were just a, a drunk and a pagan and, and someone that lived an immoral, debaucherous life. Uh, at dusk in Corinth, it was a main place for the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. And so at dusk, a thousand temple priestess, really prostitutes, would come out into the city and they would lead residents of the city up uh, to the temple where uh, they would worship. And so here's a city, it's, it's prosperous financially by day, spiritually by night, it is a totally bankrupt place, um, so much so that there was even a, a, a saying regarding uh, Corinth, something similar to what we say about Las Vegas. What's the saying for Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And this was a city with... Ships coming and going, people coming and going. Uh, there was 
uh, all of this, you know, worship that involved all sorts of strange things. And so, you know, like I said, to label someone a Corinthian was to say, they're a morally corrupt person. (laughs) They're a drunk. They're this, they're that. And so in your mind, you know, I would encourage you, as you think of Corinth, think of Las Vegas, I guess. Probably worse. And picture in your mind Paul coming to that city with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In in the midst of this spiritually bankrupt, morally corrupt city, something pretty amazing happens. A church is born. That's a work of the spirit of God. The birth of the church in this place. A providential work of God's grace. We know what the scripture says. I've heard it relayed to me from a a story from a, a pastor who's in, who actually is in Las Vegas. He says this, where sin abounds, grace abounds. And in Corinth, where sin abounded, grace abounded. And, you know, as you look at verse 2 again, there, there are two things listed here that could never stand in further opposition to one another, and it's this. One, the church of God, and two, the city of Corinth. Now, the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is the assembly of God's people. And kind of typically in the laziness of our English language, you know, we ascribe that name church to buildings. The world often associates the idea of church to a building. Uh, Look at this building, pretty cool building. Lord's blessed us with this funky old nightclub, great view. Every time somebody's here that's new, they say, can't beat this. It's awesome. God's redeemed it for his glory. But this is just a building. The church is actually us. The church is is you and I. You are the church. You are the assembly of God. You are the body of Christ. And we the church are governed by By the will of God, we are governed by our head, Christ Jesus. He's the head of his church. In Jesus, we we share life. We share salvation. We share the truths of the gospel. The church is governed by the spirit and the will of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And listed in the same sentence with the church was something that stood in total, utter opposition to the church. Something that was not governed by God. uh, Something that was rather governed by the self-will of man. Something that was ignorant of God. Something that was antagonistic to the spirit of God and the word of God and the things of God. And that was this, the city of Corinth. And and Paul's greeting reveals something of the condition of this church. He he doesn't call them the church of God that is in Christ Jesus. He says this, you're the church of God that is in Corinth. 
the church of God that is in Corinth. Because as we're going to see through, throughout this series in the book of 1 Corinthians, rather than the message of the, co- the gospel continuing to invade the city of Corinth, the opposite had begun to happen after Paul had left the city of Corinth. The spirit of the city had begun to invade the church. The line between the redeemed of God and the residents of the city had been blurred. You know, at times it was hard to tell where the church began and the city ended. And it was hard to tell where the city began and the church ended. And a church that fails to fulfill its, its function, uh, well, I would, a church fails to fulfill its function in the community uh, when it is invaded by the spirit of the community. See, the church has a responsibility to God. It's the assembly of God, the body of Christ. Think about it. You know, in this sense, we have a responsibility to God for the town of Gibsons. We, the church, have a responsibility to God for the town of Gibsons. Jesus said to his disciples, to those that followed him, he said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. He he gave them a responsibility and the church has a responsibility regarding, you know, I would say the spiritual life of a community. The church has a responsibility to God in regards to the moral standards in a community. The church has a responsibility to God in regards to the social order of a community. We're responsible before God in the town of Gibsons. And the church was not meant to be invaded by its community, but for the cause of Christ, the church was to be a beachhead for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a beachhead for the message of the gospel. You know, G. Campbell Morgan, he said this. He said, we are sometimes told that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. A thousand times no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. And you know, as I come to 1 Corinthians, as we come together to 1 Corinthians, the question that this text poses to us or what this book poses to us is this. Have we been invaded by the world or are we ruled by Christ Jesus? And whether we're invaded by the world or ruled by Christ Jesus, it will affect the ministry of the church. It will affect the influence of the church. It will affect the moral living of the church and the moral living of the the community. And this letter to the Corinthians is one that is practical, very practical to the church of every age. It's practical for us. Because every age and every generation of the church has uh, battled with, struggled with, dealt with, The lure of the age, the lure of culture, the enticement of sin as it seeks to live for Christ Jesus. 
And we know in certain generations and at different times, the church has succumbed to the invasion of the world. And Paul is writing this letter to a church that has succumbed to the invasion of the world. We're going to see Corinthians. Corinthians, this, this was a carnal, worldly church. God, by where sin abounded, grace abounded. But sin abounded in this church. And as we'll see, Paul, Paul came, uh, or he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, singular in his focus. Never changing, never wavering, preaching nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And for Paul, the preaching of the cross touched all of the practical areas of life. Oh, we're going to see the mess in Corinth. And every time Paul's going to say, Jesus and the cross is the solution. We might say, oh, Paul, come on, get practical. We have problems in our marriage. We have issues with addiction. You know, there's problems in our family life. There's issues with our kids. There's issues, you know, in our church. We deal with guilt. We have shame. We have this issue. We have that issue. Give me something practical, Paul. And this letter boldly proclaims that the solution to every problem that might ever, ever, ever plague a person is the same. Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus crucified the word of the cross. You know, I'm sure that some of you came to church today and you thought, man, God, I just need you to provide a solution. I'm like, I'm asking you, I need a solution, Lord. I got this issue going on. I got that issue. I got this problem. I'm facing this. I need a solution. The solution is this, Christ Jesus and him crucified. The message of Christ and the crucified Lord is the solution for every problem in your life. The cross delivers us from sin. The cross delivers us from carnality. The cross delivers us from worldliness. The cross delivers us from the flesh-centered, self-centered life. The cross is the solution. So let's get practical for a moment. You know... Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you come to his cross and bowed the knee? Is he the Lord of your life? Have you, in repentance of sin, turned from sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Have you experienced the reality of salvation? Do you know what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus? That's where it begins. The Corinthian church had lots of issues. Living for carnal things rather than spiritual things. And amazingly, as Paul begins to write to them, he does not begin to berate them. Instead, he begins to remind them of the glory of their salvation. Remind them of the work of the cross. He reminds them of the great privileges that have been handed there to them through Christ Jesus. For the Corinthian church, what was going to solve their issues of worldliness 
and carnality was to discover their identity in Christ Jesus. To know what had been handed them through the cross of Christ Jesus. They are the church of God. My friends, that is a privilege. To have that said over you, you are the church of God. Literally, you are the called ones. The called out of God in the city of Corinth. They were not to cringe in fear before their culture. They were not to cringe in fear before the ungodly people. They were not to cringe in fear in the midst of a pagan and godless world. They were called to live for Christ. A position of privilege, a position of authority, a position of dignity, a position of power. Jesus Christ said of his church, I will give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth and whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified means to be, to be made pure, to be purified to be made holy in Christ Jesus, to be set apart, consecrated to the things of God. Paul's saying, you are a people dedicated to God. What a thought. And as Paul expresses that, as he calls him, he calls him the, the sanctified in Christ Jesus, in the Greek, he uses the perfect tense. It's the same in English. In the eyes of the Lord, that is the effect of the cross. Perfectly, we have been consecrated to the things of God. Dedicated for his purposes. Assigned to his task. You know, yesterday, uh, Jonah had his first uh, baseball game of the season. It was fun. It was good. It was cold out there. But I was hoping for a hot dog when I got to the field. But the stand wasn't open. And... Friday night, he said to me after practice, he says, Dad, I'm pitching tomorrow. I said, sweet, dude. He says, I'm, I'm in. Probably any three to five, somewhere in the middle of the game, I get to pitch. I said, man, that's awesome. And, you know, it, it, was, it was really cool because he was excited to get into the game because he knew the position that the coach had assigned for him. See, having knowledge of the position for him was exciting. He was looking forward to it. He understood that 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 position that was assigned to him was going to allow him to have effect in the game. He was going to have influence. His coach had mandated the task to him. And with his skill and, and gifting and ability that he honed, he could affect the game. And interestingly, you know, his success or his lack thereof was not the focus of the coach. The focus of the coach was the assignment that he'd been given, the position that he had been handed. And he wanted to please his coach. He wanted to affect the outcome of the game. The Corinthian church and we the assembly of God had been given a position 
from the coach, the coach of coaches, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But in Corinth, the church had lowered the level, reduced the position. And so Paul says, man, we need to talk about this. I need to remind you of your position. I need to remind you of your identity. You are the church. You are the sanctified of God. He says in verse 2, check it out again, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints. If you have a pen in your hand, I want you to do something in your Bible, okay? If you got a pen, I want you to go to verse 1 and read with me. It says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. I want you to circle those words to be. And let me ask you this question. Was Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle? Or was, call, or was Paul called by the will of God an apostle? He was called an apostle. Those words to be were added by translators. Now look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Circle the words to be. Then what I did, you know, just for myself to remind me, as I wrote in the margin of my Bible, to be in verse 1 and 2 is added by the translators. It's not in the original. The point is this. They were saints, and you are saints. And as the translators, you know, tried to clarify something, they muddied it. They made it more cloudy. The actual translation is this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Position. Saints. See, you're a saint, or you ain't. A saint is not something you become. A saint is not something ascribed to you after you die, after people come and they assess your life. I mean, good works, bad works. Yeah, they're pretty good. We're going to say that that person's a saint and they inspect your life. Yeah, they qualify. No, they don't qualify. Look at I look around the room. We don't qualify. A saint is simply this. A, a person most holy and separated to God. See, being a saint is not something you become. Being a saint is not something you achieve. Being a saint is something that is ascribed to you on the basis of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen up. You're a saint or you ain't. You are either in Christ or you are dead in your sin. And if you're in Christ, then you are a saint. The church in Corinth was called saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
Paul is saying this. Saints, sainthood is the universal position of all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coach, coach, where am I? Where am I in the game? Well, son, you're a saint or you ain't. And if you're with me, you're a saint. And Paul says, this is ascribed to the church of all generations. This is, he doesn't say it that way, but he says to the church who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. That means this is applicable for us. This is a message for us. You are a saint. But this was a church that was not living up to the position and the calling. They were living at a low level. So what does Paul do? Does he kick the dog? It's been in the garbage. My dog was in the garbage. Last week, I discovered that the dog was going in the garbage, and then she was going into my bedroom under my bed to eat the garbage. And she was leaving, you know, garbage under my bed. So I kicked the dog. No, I did not kick the dog. I'm just joking. That's the qu- Does Paul kick the church? Does he kick the church like the mangy dog that she's acting like? No, he lifts them like he did, like I believe he did Sosthenes. He lifts them from the gutter of carnality by reminding of their, by reminding them of their true identity in Christ Jesus. You're the church. You're the sanctified. You're called saints. That is your identity. You're not a gutter rat. He reminds them to remember that the word of the cross has changed their lives. You know, think for a moment of the contrast between a resident of Corinth and a, and a saint. Resident of Corinth was someone who lived self-willed, self-governed life. Likely, they were probably doing pretty well financially, but morally and spiritually, they were bankrupt defiled, guilty of sexual immorality and debauchery. Not only that, they were deceived, I would say. They, they, they really, truly believed that they were living and exercising freedom of choice. But their idea of freedom was to live a life in bondage to sin. They did not have the freedom to say no to the vices of this world. To be called a Corinthian was not a compliment. It was to say drunken, immoral person. On the other hand, a saint, someone forgiven, someone living under the rule of Christ, someone who truly knows what freedom of choice is because they're no longer mastered by sin, set apart as holy, a dedicated instrument to the purposes of God and his kingdom. Their position was not based on performance. The position of sainthood was handed to them as a gift because of the cross. It it would not be taken from them because they had a bad inning. You know, I was thinking um, about coaching in this idea, you know, 
I've had so much fun just coaching my kids. I, baseball, I'm beyond my level now, so I quit. That's coming in hockey pretty quick. But being involved with my kids and different kids in the community over the years, and one of the things that's so interesting to watch in sport as you're coaching kids is uh, the transition period that an athlete goes goes through when they move from one age group up to the next age group. You know, in hockey, you know, you move from Adam into Pee Wee and then Pee Wee into Bantam. And the challenges that that athlete faces as they move up an age group. The athlete has to learn to compete at a higher level. Uh, That means really two things in my mind. They have to develop the skill to handle the competition that surrounds them. But secondly, they also have to adopt a mentality um, that says, I belong here. I can compete against these players. Uh, They have to have that mentality of self-confidence that says, I can do this. I I belong here. And there is this period of adjustment for an athlete where when they move up an age group that they, that they struggle typically with skill and they struggle with their sense of self-doubt and failure because their skill is not matching some of the older kids and things like that. And, and the reality is, is a, a young athlete as he develops has to learn to get back on the horse, get back in the game, go in for another inning, Get up off the ice. You have to believe that you can belong and that you can compete with the competition surrounding you. And and there is a similarity in matters of faith to that concept. When we come to faith in Christ Jesus and we are made a new creation, sin is forgiven. For the first time we've exercised faith in the living Lord and we experience what that is like. And we're handed position, the assembly of God, the church, the sanctified of the Lord. You're a saint. The redeemed of God. And the Lord says, I've sanctified you. It's like coming into a new age group. A new reality, a whole new experience. Washed clean, made pure, made white as snow. But mentally... There is the residue of Corinthian living. And the church in Corinth, though it was called the assembly of God, was surrounded culturally by a cesspool of sin. A cesspool of immorality. And there was a struggle for them as they sought to mature to adopt the mentality of a saint, to adopt the identity of a sanctified one, to recognize that they are the redeemed of the Lord and the church of the living God. And I think we can all relate to that struggle. Adopting the mentality of a saint and finding the power to say, no, (laughs) no to immorality. No to sin. No to low-level, carnal, worldly living. 
And I'm thankful for Paul's letter to the Corinthian church because this is us. This is us. We are the Corinthians in a sense. Learning what it means to live for Christ. Falling down and getting back up. Moving from low-level Christian living to pursue our high heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. And the key for all of that, it all, it all hinges on us understanding by experience the word of the cross. By us continuing, lay, continuing to lay hold of what it means to say, Christ Jesus and him crucified. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live to God. So what does Paul do for the Corinthians? Like I said, does he kick the dog? Does he throw a temper tantrum? Does he quit going to church? Does he pull out his wooden spoon? You say, okay, we're going to the woodshed. Does he beat the church? No, look in verse 3. He says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we could just fathom the depths of those words right there and take hold of them, by the help of the Holy Spirit, if we could understand and appropriate those words to our lives, um, we would see that in those words, grace and peace to you from our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, right there is everything you need to live the Christian life. Grace and peace from the source God through his son Jesus. Grace. You know, if we define that word grace, we say, you know, things like God's riches at Christ's expense. The unmerited favor of God. Not something that I've earned or deserved, it's some, but something that has been bestowed to me as a gift from the Lord. And Paul says to us, grace comes to us from God the Father through Jesus Christ. He's saying this. God is the source and Jesus is the channel. God is the source of grace and Jesus is the channel through which grace is distributed to God's creation. So grace is, you know, Christ given to me, to you. His life of purity his life of holiness, his death sufficient for the price of my, to pay the price of my sin, his impartation and empowerment of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live a life dead to sin and alive unto God. Grace really brings into our lives everything that delights the heart of God. He is the source of it. Grace makes me like Jesus. Grace gives us victory over sin where we should have failed. Grace makes us patient where we should have lost it. Grace enables you and I to give glory to God in everything in the midst of any and every circumstance and situation. 
You know, I think about grace and I think, man, or in this context, we all know what it's like not to feel like you fit in, like you don't belong. And grace is to be accepted by Christ. Grace is to say, you're in. You're in Christ. You're not on probation. Your past life died at the cross. Before God, your past life does not even exist. Grace bestowed to you is not withdrawn from you. God does not withdraw his grace. And if Paul had preached to the Corinthians, you dumb mangy dog, be better. It would have caused this immature church to fail to see themselves in Christ Jesus and him alone. The cross is sufficient for every need. If he had kicked the dog, it would have been to preach law rather than to preach grace. They would have been so disappointed in themselves and it would expose the fact that they had believed in themselves to be sufficient for every need. The proud are blind. Grace is sufficient for every need. And Paul spoke grace, uh, the grace of God to the church because real devotion to God when you live in Corinth comes not from your desire to show it. Real devotion comes from the discovery that the blessing has been received from God while we were yet unworthy and dead in our sins. Unworthy, undevoted, undeserving. That's me. And real grace is discovered there. And if they could grasp hold of their position and their identity and the grace that had been handed them in Christ Jesus, they would, they would lift out of the gutter of immoral, carnal, worldly Christian living and they would rise to the heights to which Jesus Christ had called them to live for a heavenly calling. Grace to you. Grace and peace. That's the second word, pay, peace. And once again, we see that the source of peace is who? The Father. The Father who is in heaven. And peace is distributed. It is channeled through Jesus Christ. You know, this made me think of, as I was thinking of the Father as the source, I, I was thinking of the visits that I've had to Israel. And one of my favorite places is probably not necessarily other people's favorite places. But one of my favorite places when I've been in the land of Israel is to go up way into the north, way above the Galilee, into an area that they call the, the finger. And you stand on the edge and you, you, you look into Lebanon from that area. And up in that area of the, the finger, there are three tributaries which form the Jordan River. And you go through a forest walk and you visit some of these spots. And, and literally... These rivers come right out of the ground. You go to the Banai and, and it's a rock face, three or four hundred feet high, and at the foot of it, coming out of the ground, is a river almost the width of this room. You say, where's the source of that? 
It's coming right out of the ground. My friends, God is the source of peace. Peace like a river. And Jesus is the channel through which peace comes. That's why the Father called him what? The Prince of Peace. Man, baptize me in that river. You know, for me, the best word that gives a sense of what peace is is the word harmony. Harmony. That means to have a relationship that does not have friction. We all know what it's like to have relationships that have friction. Peace means, peace from God through Jesus Christ means this for you and I. That in regards to your relationship with God, when you are in Christ, there is no friction. It is harmony. It is peace. There is balance and unity and it is the result of Christ Jesus and him crucified, the work of the cross. Grace and peace. That's what God gives to his children. And it's those gifts that motivate us and empower us to be the church. To live like saints. To act like the sanctified of the Lord. And rather than being invaded by the world and the spirit of the age, the spirit, the the church by the power of the cross and the message of the gospel must invade not the city or the community or not be invaded by the city or the community, but must rather invade the city, the community and be a beachhead for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so through Corinthians, Paul is going to address many very worldly carnal things that were manifesting in the church. And every time he's going to say the solution is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, as I read this and I think of the identity that's been handed to us because of the cross, the church of God, the sanctified called saints. I think this, my God, I want to live for you. Don't you want to live for the king? Don't want to live for the past. Don't want to live in shame. Don't want to live in doubt. Don't want to live in bondage to sin. And all those things that I was, was exchanged for grace at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we live for the king. And we need to know him, not just know about him. And so this morning, uh, would you guys stand with me? And let's pray. I'm going to invite Murray and Beth to come. And let's just tell Jesus as they come, I want to live for you, Jesus. Come, come and make my heart your home. Father, this morning, we thank you that we can come boldly before a throne that is called the throne of grace. It's a throne in heaven upon which you are seated because you are the source of all grace. You are the source of all peace. And you hand it out. You generously bestow it 
over the face of the earth through your son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. And Father, before you, we thank you this morning that you don't kick us for our worldly carnal living, but rather you call us to be your church, to live the sanctified life, to live as those called saints. Thank you for that position. God, we thank you for that identity. God, we thank you that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. May we live for that which is new. May we live uh, for the things of your spirit. May we, God, invade this community. May we be a beachhead for the gospel. Jesus, I thank you for lifting us out of the gutter. I thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that the cross is the solution for sin, carnality, worldliness, everything that is opposed to you. It is the solution. And this morning, once again, Lord, we bow our knee at the cross. Forgive us our sins. Wash us in your blood. Be the Lord of our lives. We want to live for you, King Jesus. Amen. Amen.